Good morning. Well, my wife's not here this time, so maybe I won't get in quite as much trouble. You know, this loving, amazing church that we got here, all morning I had people, you know, uh, from about 7 o'clock on. Hey, Sean, uh, you want us to pray for you? Yeah, I'll take some prayer. Everybody, you know, lots of people surrounding me and just covering me in prayer. It was beautiful. And everybody's saying the same thing. Man, you know, Lord, we just pray you take away those nerves. And I got, got, got me thinking, like, how can they tell I'm so nervous about this? I just don't get it, you know. And then I got to thinking, as I was sitting there this morning before first service, you know, Shannon and I, we just had a new baby. And we had to go to this special class because she was doing a natural birth. And it was like this special natural birthing class. And the, the lady teaching the course looks at Shannon and I and she goes, so this is what you're going to need to do because we want you guys to relax. Like that's the trick to this whole thing is you just got to relax while you're going through this crazy pain. And I'm going to be able to tell whether or not you're like, and, and what she said is it's, it's your eyebrows. So there was this trick that she said to do. And she said, what I'm going to need you to do is I'm going to need you to do horse lips. Now I took one look at Shanda and Shanda took one look at me and I knew right then and there that there was no way in the world I was going to tell my wife to do horse lips while she was having a baby. That was the right decision. That being said, that being said, once, once the time came, it was time to have the baby, I'll be doggone, she did it on her own. It worked. So, all together now, we're going to do it together. We're going to take a deep breath in, and we're going to blow out the nerves. Are you ready? All right. Now we can get started. You can turn to your Bibles. To John chapter 18, verse 28. So last week, Rob, who took the easy way out, talked to us about the Lord Jesus Christ and how his face was set like flint. I mean, his eyes were focused on the cross. He knew exactly where he was going, and nothing was getting in his way, just completely unwavering. Today, we're going to look at somebody that's a little less unwavering. Somebody that's honestly pretty wishy-washy, um, who had convictions but, but turned his back on those convictions. We're going to look at a guy named Pilate. Um, let me give you a little context before we get started. So Pilate was the governor of the area of Judea and Samaria. And the way this worked is Caesar, he ruled from Rome. So he would set up these little politicians in these little areas. The idea is to, to keep the peace, to collect the taxes, and really just to make sure that, you know, the Roman authority was maintained. And, and in hot spots, in places where there were lots and lots of conflict, he hand-selected those guys special. Um, and, and Judea was one of those hot spots. Jerusalem has, continues to be a hot spot, always has been. And uh, so Pilate is, is set in this position of authority as governor, and with that, is under a, a considerable amount of scrutiny from Caesar and, uh, you know, kind of failing on this position, not a good thing. Um, that, that, that it's usually going to mean your life. Uh, Caesar was uh, pretty ruthless, this particular Caesar Tiberius. So this is kind of the context in which we find uh, Pilate here in verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered him, If this man were not doing evil, 
we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. And the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show what kind of death he was going to be. So, it's early in the morning. The, the Romans, they were pretty smart. They had this, this system where they would, like, they would start their work day at 6 in the morning so they could be off by like noon. Not, not a bad deal. So they, they come out early in the morning, and the Jews approach. Uh, usually, Pilate is in Caesarea. That's where his headquarters are. But because it's the Passover, basically the population of Jerusalem like over doubles. So if there's 200,000, well, now there's going to be 550,000 people. So if you're already in an area where they're having a hard time maintaining order, you need to, you need to shift. You need to have more police force, more soldiers on the ground. So... At this time during the Passover, Pilate would go to Jerusalem and he'd bring his cohort of, of 600 men, 300, 600 men that would go and kind of work as a police force to maintain order as all this city began to fill up. And they come up and they bring this Jesus. They said, hey, we have a criminal. We have, we have something to bring against this guy. And, and, and Pilate, you know, he does the, the right thing right off the bat. Well, what's your accusation against this man? They really don't have a good answer. Well, uh, well he, you know, we wouldn't bring him if he was evil, unless he was evil. And, and uh, you know, Pilate, who's, again, already under considerable amount of pressure just because of the position that he holds, well, now he's starting to get a little bit of pressure on him from the Jews who are wanting him to, t- to take care of this situation. So his initial response after questioning him is, you take care of him. It's your problem, not mine, right? Bucks off of him, it's back on their responsibility. The issue was, though, Roman law forbid uh, Jewish people or anybody, unless you were Roman, you were not allowed to exercise capital punishment. And they wanted Jesus dead, so it had to go into Roman's hands. So they kind of pushed back a little bit on Pilate, and the pressure just kind of mounts a little bit. Verse 33, so Pilate entered his headquarters again, and he called Jesus and he said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? And Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered to the Jews. But... My kingdom is not from the world. But Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, What is truth? And after he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews, and he told them, I find no guilt in him. So Pilate has his initial interview with the Jews that are accusing Jesus, and then he does the next logical step. Well, I'm going to go interview the guy. So he talks to Jesus, and he asks him, what's this all about? Doesn't really get a straight answer. I like how, how Pilate tries to like pigeonhole him. So you are a king. Just looking, he's got to have some kind of charge, some reason. 
that Christ should, be, should die. And, and as he always does, Jesus has a cool way of kind of working around that. And he comes to, to the heart of it. it. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And I love this. It's just funny. As soon as he says that, Pilate immediately identifies himself as somebody who doesn't listen to the truth. What is truth? I don't even know what truth is. It's just kind of fascinating. So now you've got this pressure. Kind of continuing to mount over the situation. Pilate's kind of trying to figure this out. He can't have a riot, can't have any kind of chaos going on in Jerusalem. So he's still kind of trying to work his thing out. Well, John gives us part of the story, but like every, everything in the Gospels, it kind of, you know, you've got all these different people telling different stories. So they remember, or telling the same story, but they remember different pieces of it. So we flip over to Matthew 27, and that's uh, 15 through 19. And it says, now the feast of the governor, at the feast, they were accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. And besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. So we've got the pressure from Rome. We've got the pressure from the Jews. He's starting to realize, well, I don't find any guilt in him. So he's got his own internal stuff going on. This guy's not guilty of anything. I got a plan. What I'm going to do is we have this tradition every year at Passover. We're gonna, we, we release one prisoner back to the people. So I'm going to take Jesus, who's squeaky clean, and I'm going to talk about this guy, Barabbas. Now this guy, this guy was a murderer and caused all kinds of riots and insurrectionists trying to throw over the government. So the idea is, you know, hey, look, you guys pick who's going to be released. I've got squeaky clean guy, I got bad guy. And then, you know, the idea is, well, of course, they're going to choose the squeaky clean guy. I'm out of the situation. The tradition continues. Man, I'm, I'm out of this political pressure that's going on here. And added to that is his wife. So he's already got the political pressure. already got the government pressure from, from Rome. If he just messes up at all, now his wife says, honey, leave this guy alone. So now he's got personal pressure coming from his wife. And he... The crowd has been persuaded by the Jewish rulers, and it backfires. This plan to, to get Jesus released and, and, and sentenced to Barabbas backfires, and after pressure, the crowd chooses Barabbas. So Pilate's caught again between a rock and a hard place. Just The pressure just keeps mounting and mounting. Chapter 19 of John. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Pilate's examined lots of people. This isn't his first trial. This isn't his, his, his first rodeo at all. So he does something. He already knows 
that Jesus is innocent. I wrestled with this this week as I looked at it. Why did he have to have him flogged? Why did he have to have him flogged? But really, this is Pilate's last-ditch effort at some kind of mercy. The idea is, I'm going to beat Jesus. I'm going to examine him the way that we examine people. And then I'm going to take him out in front of the crowd. And I'm going to show what's left of Jesus when I get done with him. Flogging was brutal. Use these little bitty sticks, these whips with these leather thongs that had bone and rock and, and, and metal in it. And they would and the two big old dudes who their only job was to beat on you would beat on you. Oftentimes it would rip holes in their back. Their kidneys would be exposed. Lots and lots and lots of people just died from the flogging. And they bring him out. The idea is surely they'll have mercy on him now. And he'll go, and again, I'm out of this situation. No riot. Everybody's happy. He's got the beating. This is done. But when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him. Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. A third time of, uh, of professing his innocence. And the Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. And when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. Now keep in mind the way these Romans worked, man. They had all these different false gods, all these different idols, man. And all these gods, this god did this thing, and this god did that thing. And, and there was like this always a constant superstitious belief that, man, I'm going to mess up and step on this god's toes, so I need to do this, and i got to do that. So he's freaking out now. The son of God. Just more pressure, more pressure coming down on Pilate. So he enters his headquarters again, and he said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. And from then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews, they cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So Pilate questions Jesus. Where are you from? Who are you? What's this all about? And, you know, again, the Lord just spins it back around on him. And, and, and Pilate resolves in his heart, I I'm going to set this guy free. So he's looking at Jesus. He's assessing the situation. He walks out, and that's what he's going to do. I'm going to set this guy free. And he takes one look at the crowd, and the Jews do another power play. Well, he makes himself a king. He's no friend of Caesar. This is a threat from them. We will riot. Caesar's going to know what you've done. You're putting another king in. You've got to deal with it now, right? And the pressure just continuing to mount on Pilate. And when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out. And he sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now, it was the day of preparation of the Passover, and it was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. 
And they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to be crucified. The same guy who sought to release Christ delivered him over to be crucified. We go down just a little further. Pilate also wrote on an inscription and put on the cross, it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read the inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic and in Latin and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. So here's Pilate. All this pressure is mounting on. And he caves. He caves into the demands of the crowd. And then in just a a snarky way, you know, I may have done what you want, but what I've written, I've written. And then Pilate disappears. We don't see any more about Pilate in Scripture. That's it. We don't know what his face looked like when he found out that the the temple curtain had ripped from top to bottom. Or the crowds of 400 people that were eyewitnesses that Jesus Christ had risen from the grave. We have no idea what happens to Pilate. How How did he take it? He just disappears. The closest we get, there's a historian called Eusebius. And he writes that the tradition was that he gets banished at some point to Switzerland and throws himself off of a cliff into a lake, commits suicide, takes the Judas route. And that's all you ever hear from Pilate from history. Caved. But can't you kind of, I don't know, you can almost feel bad for it. It's a terrible situation, but he caved. He caved under the pressure. And what's crazy about this, every single gospel account, right before we get to Pilate caving, we have another fellow that's going to cave. If you guys turn to Luke 22, 59 through 62. You guys know this story. Everybody knows this story. There's this loudmouth kind of arrogant, just the man, apostle named Peter. Makes all kinds of big statements. I like Peter. I understand how Peter works. And uh, he uh, had made some statements about following Christ and all this other stuff, and the the Lord had kind of warned him. And we get to this passage. This is after he's already denied Jesus Christ two times. It says, after an interval of about an hour, Still another person insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And then the Lord turned, and he looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out, and he wept bitterly. So before Pilate caved, Peter caved. But what's the difference between them? 
How come we never hear any more about Pilate? We got lots from Peter and his story. Now, I love how John MacArthur puts it in his commentary. The true Peter is seen not in his denial, but in his repentance. This account reminds us of not only our own weakness, but also the richness of divine grace. Paul or Peter collapsed under the pressure, but he never turned his eyes off of Christ. Um, that outside pressure didn't go so well for Peter the first time. Later on, he'll, he'll get that back. There's another guy. We, we just talked about him. talked to the youth about David. Now, David didn't collapse from the outside pressure. He collapsed from the inside pressure. Here's this David. God calls him a man after his own heart. What a commendation. Man, that's awesome. And, and for the first part of his life, you, you kind of get a sense of that. I mean, this dude is fighting bears and lions, taking out giants, leading armies, and taking over the world. I love, I love what it says. it says it multiple times in Samuel. The Lord was with him wherever he went. Victory was with him wherever. I mean, man, that's awesome. I, would, I think we would all like, like that to be our story. But David gets in a place where, where he's feeling very confident in himself, not so much focused on the Lord, commits a terrible sin. Not just the infidelity part and the adultery, but if you read about this guy Uriah that he murdered to try to cover this thing up, man, that was a good dude. If you're a soldier, that's the guy you want with you, man. That is an honorable man that David murdered to try to cover up his sin. This same David, who the Lord says is a, God, a man after God's own heart. He can wrestle with that. And I was thinking about it. It doesn't mean what we think. It isn't that, that David's heart is like God's heart. Any more than my heart's like God's heart or your heart's like God's heart. Our heart is nothing like God's. But what David was, was a man seeking after God's own heart. And we see this. Psalm 51. This is immediately after Nathan confronts David. So David tries to, to push all this under the rug, and, and, and the prophet Nathan confronts David, and he is exposed for the adultery, exposed for the murder. He is exposed at, at, for the wickedness that he had done. And I want you to listen. Listen to the heart of David. Listen to the heart of repentance. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before you. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. 
Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness. O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem, and then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings, and bulls will be offered on your altar. Peter crumbled. David crumbled. Pilate crumbled, but there was a difference. Pilate crumbled, and he never looked back. Peter didn't get that luxury. The Lord was looking right at him. David, mess as it was, and man, when you read the consequences that came out of this, I mean, this guy, eternally, the Lord forgave him. But boy, oh boy, he had some earthly consequences. Kids trying to kill him. Kingdoms, I mean, just calamity after calamity. But the whole time, you can read through the book of Psalms. It's there constantly, time after time. David never, ever, in the face of all of this, turns his back on the Lord. He repents. He turns toward him. And man, I'm not perfect. I know a lot of you. You're not perfect either. It's comforting to know that even if we don't get it right all the time, the Lord will forgive us and that there's hope. Now, with the disasters, we do have some things to strive for. You know, Peter, he, he comes out of his disaster, and later on, Fox's Book of Martyrs talks about him. He got crucified, you know, martyred for his faith. And he, he wouldn't even get crucified like the Lord did. He had to be crucified upside down because he wasn't fit to be crucified like Jesus. Talk about a transformation. You know, I won't even say that I know the guy, but later on, I'm going to die for him. Pretty big change. Another guy, honestly, he's one of my favorite guys in the Bible, guy named Stephen. We don't get a whole lot except that, you know, they had this little council because they had some widows that were needing some food and, and, and the church was growing so big they just needed some extra hands. So this guy, Stephen, man, he's one of the guys that they chose. And he went and took care of widows and he shared God's word. And, and, and not everybody in, in Jerusalem liked that. And the, the, the same Jewish folks, rulers that, that didn't like Jesus, didn't like Stephen, man. And, and, and there was all this pressure, and they were crowding around him and basically telling him to stop. Stephen gives one of the most fiery sermons you're likely to hear and prays for his captain, the, the, the people that are persecuting him as they stone him to death. I mean, he is the man. Like, he is, he is the man. He is a hero. Paul. Same thing, and Paul was a mess, and God forgives him, and we get to Acts, and, and he's got to go back to Jerusalem, so they, he's, he's on his way back to Jerusalem, he's visiting all these little churches that he established with, with his crew along the way, 
And everywhere he goes, man, these guys are like, don't go back to Jerusalem, Paul. Nothing but hardship there. Uh, everybody, the, the Holy Spirit's saying you're going to die, all this other stuff, you know. And Paul, who reminds me so much of Christ and that, that set like flint, you know, Peter tried to deter Jesus from going to Jerusalem. It's the same kind of situation. They're trying to deter Paul. And this is Paul's response. And Paul answered, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready, not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. Awesome. Then my favorite guy. This book, it's uh, Sketches from Church History, a guy named S.M. Houghton. I didn't grow up in church, so I didn't know a lot about church history, so I wanted to learn. I just wanted to know, you know, where, how are we, where we are now from where we were, and this is one of the books that, that the Lord put in my path, and it talks about this fellow. This fellow's name is Polycarp, and Polycarp was a direct disciple of the Apostle John. Now, I'm just going to read you a story. About the year 155, the aged Christian pastor Polycarp was also martyred. He had been a disciple of the Apostle John and had become the leading Christian in the church at Smyrna, one of the seven churches of Asia named in the chapters 1 and 2 of the book of Revelation. Now, in the middle of the second century, this church was visited with fierce persecutions. Polycarp found refuge for a short time outside the city limits, but he was betrayed by an unfaithful servant and fell into the hands of his enemies. Calm and dignified, he surrendered himself with the words, God's will be done. And then, listen, after giving food to his hungry persecutors, he poured out his heart before the Lord, praying for himself, his friends, the church of Smyrna, and also his enemies. It's not done yet. The usual test applied to Christians was that they must call Caesar the emperor Lord, as if he were a divine person. Refusal to do so meant the death sentence. Taken before the Roman consul, Polycarp was required to say on oath that he venerated Caesar in this way, but he was firm in his refusal. I have wild beast, said the consul. If you refuse, I will throw you to them. Send for them, replied Polycarp. If you despise wild beast, I will send you to the fire, said the consul. Swear and I will release you. Curse the Christ. Just words again. This is just words. Just say the words. Polycarp's response, Eighty and six years have I served Christ, replied Polycarp, 86-year-old man. And he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? You threaten the fire that burns for an hour and then is quenched, but you know not of the fire of the judgment to come and the fire of the eternal punishment. Bring what you will. The consul was astonished and sent a herald to announce to the people that Polycarp had confessed himself to be a Christian. When the torch was applied to the wood and smoke and flames encircled him, again he prayed, Lord God, Father of our blessed Savior, 
I thank thee that I have been deemed worthy to receive the crown of martyrdom and that I may die for thee and for thy cause. It goes on to say, It is recorded that all the multitude marveled at the difference between unbelievers and the elect as they face such persecution. How was Polycarp able to stand like that? Or Stephen? Or, or Paul? Or Peter? How did they stand when the others fell? They kept their eyes on Christ. And it's important for us. Because even now, you don't have to listen too hard to hear the crowds call him crucifying. Crucifying. In some parts of the world right now, I don't know if you guys are aware of this. Uh, many of you probably are. We have more Christian martyrs being made today than at any time in history. Any time in history. Even more than, than all this. You get outside the comfy confines of the United States, and being a Christian costs you something. Costs you a lot. Costs you your family. Costs you your life. Here, persecution can look a little different. That pressure can look a lot different. It might be something as light as, man, no, 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 we don't talk about that at work. No, man, I, no. I can't, I can't talk about that at school. Talk about, I don't know, abortion, sexuality. Oh, no, 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 no. That's, we're going to stay away from all that stuff, right? The pressure to conform to, for lack of a better terms, the idolatry of political correctness. We got pressure. We got pressures on the inside. I mean, get a little closer to home. I love sleep. Got brand new baby. I really, really love sleep. So, do I stay in bed and sleep? Or do I get up 30 minutes early just so I can sit down and spend a little bit of time praying with my kids, do a little devotional with them before I send them to school? different pressures man we've all got them the crowd is always always crawling crucifying come on up man so what do we do in those situations to stand to stand firm whether it's the little bitty things or the great big things and the answer is we stay focused on christ when we fail to do that, we're going to fall. And he's faithful and he's just to forgive us and when we seek repentance. He, he will. But man, would you rather be a David or a Peter? Or would you rather be a Polycarp? And it's all rooted, man. It's all rooted in staying focused. It's all rooted in beholding the man.